God after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways in these last days has spoken to us in his son whom he appointed heir of all things through whom also he made the world and he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature and upholds all things by the word of his power when he had made purification of sins he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much better than the angels as he has inherited a more excellent name than they. Uh, so that's Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 to 4. And with that, I just want to invite Pastor Roger up uh, to teach God's word to us. Well, thank you, Alex, for um, reading the text for us and just getting us ready for tonight's sermon. Uh, good to see you all. I hope you had a good week. Um, as many of you know, we are going through our series, Why We Believe, and we happen to be on the person and work of Christ this evening. And so, in case you haven't read our doctrinal statement, it says, um, under the person and work of Christ, we believe that the Lord Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, having been conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary, became man without ceasing to be God in order that he might re reveal God and redeem sinful men. We believe that the Lord Jesus Christ accomplished our redemption through his death on the cross as a substitutionary sacrifice of atonement and was raised physically from the dead because of our justification. So that's our doctrinal statement. Uh, and we'll be fleshing some of that out tonight in case you've never uh, really thought too much about that. But uh, before we get into that, let's pray one more time. Let's pray. <coughs> Our gracious Heavenly Father, we're grateful to you for just all that you've done, for your loving kindness to us and for just how you reveal yourself to us through your word. We're grateful for your son, Jesus Christ, and we pray that as we study more of who he is, as we get a refresher of who he is, may we be more and more thankful for him as a result of this study. We know that it can be easy as we study a very familiar subject, your son, uh, to check out because we know it already. We know him, and we know a lot about him, and we just pray that, Lord, as we review some of these things, that we would... Think about the scriptures that, that teach about your son and that you would use these scriptures to affirm to us, to confirm to us how he truly is your eternal son who is worthy of all praise and glory and honor. Pray for your strength tonight and that you would also just make yourself glorious in our eyes as we study as in your sons and we pray amen well the gospels of matthew mark and luke they all record the accounts of jesus asking his disciples who the people say he is and as you may recall the answers varied from john the baptist to elijah and to one of the prophets now only peter Aided by the Holy Spirit, answered correctly when he stated, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. This question, Jesus asked, is one of the most critical questions that people must 
have an answer for because it could be the difference between genuine salvation and him and an eternity in hell. When eternity is at stake, we cannot afford to have wrong ideas of Jesus. We have to make sure that the Jesus we love and worship is the same Jesus revealed to us in the scriptures. It doesn't matter what we might feel and what other people might try and say and persuade us to believe. The only view of Jesus that leads to life is the view that is clearly taught in the scriptures. Granted, there are people out there who believe that they are being faithful to the Bible in their erroneous views. But this is why it is important for us to remember that the Bible comes with hermeneutics included. It comes with the set of rules by which the Bible must be interpreted included. The set of rules for interpretation included with the Bible are like the batteries that were included with our favorite childhood toys, right? Batteries included. While we do not have too much time to speak on this, we want to understand the Bible as it is literally written and when it is meant to be literal, right? If it's metaphorical, then obviously we want to take it as metaphorical, right? But we want to understand it as it was literally written in its grammatical and historical context. And with those hermeneutical principles undergirding our study of the person and work of Jesus tonight, I want to explore five critical aspects of Jesus Christ that the scriptures teach us to inform our belief. Five critical aspects of Jesus that the scriptures teach us to inform our belief. And the first critical aspect of Jesus that the scriptures teach us is the pre-existence of Christ. The pre-existence of Christ. Now, before we go any further, I do want to quickly note that a sermon on the person and work of Jesus Christ is worth, at the very least, a few weeks' worth of classes, if not an entire semester. When I, was, when I looked at this assignment and was trying to figure out what to preach on, I was kind of like a dog in a butcher shop. I just didn't know which direction to go in. There's just so much. There's so many things that I would like to, to try and teach you about Jesus that I just cannot do within the time frame tonight. So if you're, if you're thinking that uh, I missed some stuff, well, it's probably because I did it on purpose because there just wasn't enough time. Um, unless you want me to be a Bible dump truck, which I'm pretty sure you don't want me to be. So... Uh, the reason why we are studying Hebrews 1 tonight is because I believe that this particular passage sums up a good number of things that I want to explore with you tonight. And I will do my best to be restrained. I can't promise that I'm going to be short, but I'm going to do my best to be restrained. So with that said, let's turn our attention to verses 1 and 2. It says, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. The author of Hebrews, whose identity is not revealed to us, although some speculate that this could be a transcribed sermon from the Apostle Paul, turns our attention immediately to God the Father. And in the past, it says, God spoke to the fathers in the prophets in many portions and in many ways. Now, what does that mean? Well, since the book of Hebrews was written around 67 to 69 AD, there was at least a separation of 2,000 years from the, uh, from the time of he that Hebrews was written and when God began revealing himself to the patriarchs. Actually, scratch that, 4,000 years. And as we can see 
all throughout the Old Testament, God reveals himself to his people through the prophets, and he's done so in various ways. He certainly has done so through giving them his word, using his Holy Spirit to work with the writers of Scripture so that they might communicate accurately what he wanted to reveal to them about himself during that time. Sometimes that form of revelation came in narrative. Other times it was in poetry and, of course, directly from uh, prophecy at the other times. But we've also seen that God has spoken to generations of Israelites outside of Scripture as well, outside of the writing of Scripture as well. For some, God has spoken to them personally, like when he spoke to Abraham or Moses. And others, they learned what God wanted them to understand through visions, right? When Samuel was asleep, or even some of the prophets, when they were asleep, God spoke to them. And because of these various varied ways that God has spoken to his people, the author of Hebrews says that God has spoken to the fathers in the prophets in many portions and in many ways. Now, however, notice we have a contrast in verse 2. Whereas God has spoken to the fathers in the prophets long ago, in these last days... He has spoken to us. Notice the emphasis that the author puts on himself and and on his current audience and also to us in his son. And that contrast is set up with the words in these last days. Now, Peter, he explains in Acts 2 that we are in the latter days or last days, that broad time period spanning from the victory of Messiah on, on the, uh, when he rose from the dead to the day when we're all glorified in heaven. Those are the latter days, the last days. And so the last days, they remind us that the end is in sight. The end is in sight. We are now in the period where God can send his son Jesus to come back at any time to execute justice on the earth and establish his kingdom. And so the author tells his audience that we are in those last days right now. And God has spoken to us through his son, making that which is promised, well, making that which was promised in the past in the process of being fulfilled. While it is not completely fulfilled because there are still things we're waiting for, the beginning of the end is here. And what we know from Christ's revelation is that God will fulfill his plans soon. Jesus, he's identified as God's son, who has been appointed as the heir of all things, since he is naturally the son of the king. And this is a clear allusion back to Psalm 2.8, where God tells his son to ask him for his inheritance. And God will give his son the nations and the earth as his possession, since it is rightfully his And this is a reminder of Jesus' royal status, his supremacy, his sovereignty, since he is ruling as king with God also. But it's not as if Jesus only came onto the scene when he became a human and then became the son of God who had the right to these promises. We see here in the last part of verse 2 that it is through the son that God made the world. It's through the Son that God made the world, through whom he also he made the world. Right? Think back to Genesis 1. When God spoke forth his commands for all things to come into existence, every time God the Father spoke, 
God the Son caused it to come into being. This is why in Genesis 1.26, when God makes man, he says, Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. He was talking to God the Son and God the Holy Spirit. He wasn't just sitting there on his royal throne saying, Well, I'm God, I'm royalty, so I'm just going to use the royal we whenever I talk about myself. No, he was talking to God the Son, and he was talking to God the Holy Spirit. And it is through the Son that he brings everything into being. John 1.3 tells us that through God's word, who was with God in the beginning, all things came into being. Apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. The word is later identified in John 1.14 to be the Son of God, as the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And that speaks of the incarnation of Jesus. Colossians 1, 16 to 17 says, For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. As the scriptures clearly teach, both in the Old Testament And the New Testament, Jesus was not a man whom the Holy Spirit came upon and indwelt at birth, but was eternally existing with God the Father as God the Son. And since we see that the scriptures teach this consistently, this is a consistent doctrine that is a core part of the Christian faith. Naturally speaking, of Jesus' preexistence, leads us to the second critical aspect of Christ the scriptures teach us about, which is the deity of Christ. We already kind of leaked into that already, but the deity of Christ. Now, the deity of Christ is a separate aspect of Christ, which is admittedly redundant, because as you've noticed, we've already assumed his deity when we talked about his preexistence. And so, too, does the author of Hebrews. But the reason why I separated his deity from his preexistence is because the author does not lean into this until now, verse 3. And so what we find here in the first half of verse 3 are strong affirmations that emphasize Jesus' relationship with God the Father. It says, and he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature. Christ is first described as the radiance of God's glory. Now, what does it mean for Jesus to be the radiance of God's glory? Well, the idea is like how light radiates outward from a light source, whether that be the sun or a light bulb. And since Jesus radiates God's glory instead of reflects God's glory, we understand that he too is a source of the glory that comes out of the Father thus putting him on, a, on an equal plane with God the Father. If I had a flashlight and I shone the beam into a mirror, you could theoretically say that the mirror is a source of light insofar as the light can be seen in the mirror. But you would never say that the mirror is the same as the flashlight, right? because it's merely reflecting the light that's coming into it. The light is the true source that comes from the bulb, the true source that radiates out from the bulb. And so because Jesus, 
is the radiance of God's glory rather than the reflection of God's glory. He, too, is a source of the glory of God that emanates outward. He radiates God's glory at all times, not just at a point in time when God's glory was focused in on him, but is at all times he is the radiance of God's glory. Secondly, Christ is described as the exact representation of God the Father's nature. That phrase, exact representation, emphasizes the idea of a mark or impression placed on an object like an old stamp or a signet ring on a wax seal. And when you press in, what you have left is the exact same thing than what was pressed in. Jesus Christ is the exact reproduction of God, however, it's in bodily form. And Colossians 2.9 reminds us of this when it says that in Jesus, all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. The Son of God is the exact representation of God the Father's nature. He is the embodiment of God the Father. He helps us see God in a tangible way since God the Father is spirit. Through Jesus Christ, we have a clearer picture of the nature of God the Father since he shares that exact same nature. And so as someone who shares the exact same nature as God the Father, Jesus Christ, he also upholds all things by the word of his power. Jesus upholding all things by the word of his power means that his verbal command, that by his verbal command, all things that exist continue to exist. It is by his will that you and I draw breath. It is by his word, his command, that every single aspect of creation remains the same. Everything is sustained in their existence because of Jesus' command. Colossians 1.17 again tells us that Jesus is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Everything sticks together because of Christ. And what Hebrews and Colossians tells us is not only did God create everything that came into being through Jesus Christ, but he also continues to keep it together in order, and in order through his own power. The scientific method works because Jesus upholds the laws of nature so that we can expect the same results when we do an experiment again and again. And that's why the laws of nature don't change, right? We call them laws because they don't change. Why is that? Why don't we expect different results every single time? It's because Christ upholds everything. Those laws are in place because he put them there, right? Our planet is able to support human life because God has made it so that our planet's orbit allows for the ecosystems of our, of our planet to be suitable for life. And, he, and God has made it so that our orbit is stable. It doesn't go crazy. It doesn't go beyond its, its uh, ordered um, plane. It doesn't go beyond that. God sustains it so that we don't die. Right? You've heard that if the earth was off just a little bit, in his orbit, that we would die, right? If it's too close to the sun, we burn. If it's too far from the sun, we freeze. God maintains that orbit through the word of his power 
so that we could all live. This is done all through Christ. And the author of Hebrews, he emphasizes very heavily Jesus Christ's deity. Jesus is not merely a prophet who represents God during his time here on earth. He, he was not merely a man who was indwelt by God to be a godly representative until it was time for him to die on the cross, then leaving him so that he could die. He existed before time began as God. He continues to be fully God, and he will be God forever. We believe that Jesus Christ is God because he is God's word who created all things, who continues to uphold all things. He became flesh, died on the cross, rose again, and will come again to reign as king forever. The scriptures attest to this, and as a result, we believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God who is at the same time God, very God. The deity of Christ is absolutely essential to our understanding of who he is because the scriptures clearly teach that he is God. Not just a godly man, but he is God. But we cannot ignore the fact that he also had to be a man, which leads us to the third critical aspect of Christ, which is his humanity, the humanity of Christ. The last part of verse 3 says this, When he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Now you're probably wondering, where does it emphasize his manhood here? Well, why does Jesus have to become a man? It's because he had to make purification of sins. He needed to mediate between God and man. Because of our sin, you guys know this, right? Because of our sin, mankind is at odds before a holy God. We deserve wrath. We deserve divine punishment for our sins because we have rebelled against God. Everything that we are is in contrast to who he is. And when God judges us for our sin, when he executes, or when he says that we deserve punishment for our sin. It's not him being mean. It's not him being unfair. This is God being just. When he says that you deserve death and eternity in hell, it's God being just. It's him upholding justice. It's him being right. He is loving, yes. Right? But he is also just. You can't forget that. We always seem to forget that. And if it's not us, then Christians outside of our church tend to forget that God is not just a God of love, but he is also a God of justice. He has to maintain that righteousness. In Job 9, Job, in the midst of his suffering as a part of a test that God allows for him to endure, he wants a face-to-face meeting with God. He believes that he's done nothing wrong to merit the trials that are being brought into his life, And as his wisdom and the wisdom of his friends fail him, Job cries out, longing for a court date with God so that the trial could end and he could be proved blameless because his friends were saying, Job, the reason why you're suffering is because you sinned. Repent, and God will take it away. And Job's looking at them. He's like, what have I done? I've done nothing. This has just come upon me, and I've done nothing. I don't say that I haven't sinned ever, but I've done nothing to merit this trial. And yet, 
in verse 30 to 33 of Job 9, Job notes that even if he were to wash himself clean, God rightly could judge him because of his sin nature in general. Even though Job wants that court date with God, he knows that there is no way he could go to court with God because God is not a man. God is not a man. He's God. There's a distance between the two. And nobody can come in between and bring them together to reconcile them. And Job, he recognizes that there is no hope for any sort of reconciliation between God and man because no one can put their hands on both to bring them together. There is no umpire between us who may lay his hand upon us both to reconcile us, to bring us to the same account. There's no hope at least not at that time. Jesus is the unique answer to this problem because he is both completely God and completely man, which means that he can lay his hands on both parties and bring them together. Jesus is the fulfillment of Job's wish. But how does he make that purification of sins so that man and God can be reconciled? Well, If you're familiar with the Old Testament in some form, you will remember that it is through blood, the shedding of blood, innocent blood, that the forgiveness of sins is possible. Full forgiveness through sacrifices had to be repeated yearly. While there were sacrifices for unintentional sins and for the guilt uh, that came from those, those were only temporary coverings for that sin, for those sins. And a sacrifice that cleansed all sins was not presented until Leviticus 16, where God implements this yearly sacrifice that cleanses, not just covers, but cleanses, wipes out sin from his people. But they had to do it every year. They had to do it every year. And this was for all sins, so unintentional sins and intentional sins. Imagine after the yearly sacrifice was made, you go out and you start sin- you, you, you sinned accidentally again. You're just like, oh man, I just got to cleanse. Now I got a stain on me again. Right? There was a repeated nature to the sacrifices that was uh, that that were made for sin because we're sinful beings. And there was no hope. That's why the, the the sacrificial system continued on forever and ever. That's why the the priests continually offered sacrifices. And so, as you can imagine with both unintentional sins and intentional sins that need to be covered, there had to be a lot of sacrifices in order to keep people right before God. There was no end in sight for these sacrifices that needed to be made, unless someone could make it right once for all. But the blood of goats and bulls could not do that. Philippians 2, 6-8 reminds us of how Jesus can do this, as it tells us that Jesus, who although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The only way that Jesus could die on the cross for us is is if he is, at the same time, God is also man. It's not as the Gnostics supposed that Jesus was merely a spirit who looked like a man and only appeared to die. 
Jesus had to die on the cross to make a real sacrifice that would appease God's justice. The salvation of every single person hinges upon Jesus' sacrificial death on the cross and his resurrection. Later in Hebrews 2, 14-18, the author of Hebrews writes this, Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is, the devil, and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. For assuredly, he does not give help to angels, but he gives help to the descendant of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brethren in all things so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For since he himself was tempted in that which he has suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted." Jesus' humanity is not a contradiction to his deity. For him, it was not that he was half God and half man like the Greek gods. He instead is completely God and completely man. And by becoming man, he is able to understand our weaknesses. When When we're tempted, he knows what that temptation feels like. And yet, at the same time, though he was tempted in all things, he never sinned, which proves to us that there is a way out. Right? When he says that there is a way out, there is a way out. He's not just saying that. He was tempted in every single way that we are, but he never sinned. Because he's both completely God and completely man, he is the answer to Job's wish. He is able to place his hand on God and man and bring them together. He's able to mediate. And while it's hard for us to conceive what it would be like for Jesus to have both natures in one body, being tempted to sin but sinning in absolutely nothing, this is the Jesus that had to exist if you and I are to be saved. If he was not able to represent us completely, The sacrifice he made on the cross in our place would be invalid because he would not be a true substitute for us. In order for Jesus to make purification of sins, he had to become like us and succeed where Adam failed, to succeed where we all failed because he was able to succeed where we all failed. He is able to bring us near to God and offer his righteousness to us in exchange for our sin upon himself. That's not an equal trade. That's not a fair trade, right? His righteousness for our sin, that's not fair. But he did it because he loved us. Well, Jesus' saving work on the cross necessitated him becoming flesh and living among his people so he can die on the cross in our place and then rise again from the dead. And that's one of the most significant reasons why we believe in his humanity. Another reason why we believe that Jesus had to become a man is because it is through the coming of the God-man king that God is able to fulfill all of the promises that he made in the Old Testament. Don't get me wrong. 
the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ to cleanse us from our sins, to purify us of all of our sins, is absolutely essential. It is absolutely essential. Okay, I'm not denying that. But God also had him become a man so that he could fulfill all of his promises as well. And we forget this sometimes. In 2 Samuel 7, God reveals to David that he will establish David's throne forever through one of David's descendants. The house of David and the Davidic throne shall be established forever. And unless Solomon lived forever, that's not, you know, it's not fulfilled in Solomon. And what we know, just from the other, other, uh, other kings in Israel's history, that it's none of, none, of them, none of them either. This coming king will be the key to Israel's national safety and their ability to fully occupy the land that God has promised them back in the Abrahamic covenant in Genesis 15. In order for the future covenant, the new covenant promised in Jeremiah 31 to be true, a covenant that God promises will put his law in the hearts of his people, that he will forgive them of their sins, that they will know him, the nation must survive. The Davidic king must come, and he must be the right man on the throne, perfectly submitting to God. And as you remember, all of the kings of Israel were bad, and most of the kings in Judah were okay, but they were never able to fully meet God's standards when it came to what they must be, thus leading the entire nation eventually into exile. Now, while the Davidic family still existed after exile, there was nobody on the throne as king. That's a problem. That's a significant problem because God promised in 2 Samuel 7, your kingdom, your throne will last forever. And yet, after exile, there is no king on the throne. God said to David back in 2 Samuel 7, I will not remove my loving kindness from you like I removed it from Saul. And yet, no king. It's a problem. God promised, though, in multiple prophets that he would eventually restore the house of David. And that would thus ensure the fulfillment of all the covenants. But how does he do that? Jesus' birth. Jesus' birth. There's not a ton of time to do this, but I'm going to try and squeeze it in quickly, okay? For those of you who've studied the New Testament a little bit, you know that Matthew and Luke give us two different genealogies. And we tend to ignore genealogies because we look at it and we're just like, it's just a bunch of names. There's nothing profitable for me here. Right? So we just glaze over it. But we have two different genealogies for Jesus, Matthew 1 and Luke 3, respectively. They do have their points of similarities, but when you read them together, when you read them back to back, side to side, they have their differences as well. And there are a number of different reasons for the genealogies given. But one of the ones that we're going to focus on is that these two genealogies give us two different perspectives. One from Joseph's family's perspective and the other from Mary's family's perspective. And they're both a part of the house of David, which uh, is why we get both. And there's, no, there's not a lot of contradictions. But when you look at Matthew 1.11 we see that there is a king listed whose name is Jeconiah. He's also known as Coniah. For some of you, for most of you, you're probably like, so what? Who cares, PR? Well, it's a problem, actually, because in Jeremiah 22, 20, 
8 to 30, God rejects Jeconiah and his descendants as king. God says, if you were a signet ring, I would take you off. And then, particularly startling, in verse 30, God says, Write this man down childless, a man who will not prosper in his days, for no man of his descendants will prosper sitting on the throne of David or ruling again in Judah. That's startling because God said, right? God said, I will not remove my loving kindness from your house like I did to Saul. And yet here, God is clearly rejecting Coniah. He is clearly rejecting Jeconiah. And he's saying, from now on, if you are a son of Jeconiah, you have no right to the throne. You are barred from the throne. Uh Uh-oh. How do we get around that? How do we get around that? How will David's house continue to be king, to have a king on the throne, if Jeconiah's descendants are barred from the throne? Well, enter Mary's side of the family. Though she is in the family of David, her genealogy has no mention of any kings in it, except for David. It can be traced back to David because, obviously, she's in David's family tree, but it's an entirely different side of the family than the one that's been cursed. It avoids the Jeconiah curse, thus solving our problem. And this brings us to a a very important realization in regards to Jesus' humanity. The virgin birth of Jesus Christ is absolutely necessary for us to believe. The gospel writers make it very clear that Joseph is not the biological father of Jesus, and which is also a significant factor in terms of fulfilling prophecy. Jesus is Joseph's son in the sense that Joseph adopted him and raised him as his own, thus giving Jesus the legal right to be king. He only has a legal right because he's been adopted into Joseph's family. But on Mary's side, we have the blood right for him to be king. He's still Davidic. He's Davidic on both sides, right? But because he is not from Joseph's side of the family, because he is... He was not a part of Joseph's line, but he was only the son of the Virgin Mary whom the Holy Spirit created Jesus in the womb. He is able to have the throne without contradiction of the Jeconiah curse. We avoid that completely. And that's why it was important that the gospel writers emphasize the fact that she was a virgin until after she gave birth to Jesus. Right? Even when she was pregnant, she was a virgin. Joseph had no part in it whatsoever. It avoids completely the Jeconiah curse. Now, in order to fulfill all of his promises to David, Abraham, and the entire nation, Jesus had to be human born of a virgin. Salvation is not the only thing that is at stake when we talk about Jesus' humanity. People who focus merely on his saving work when it comes to why he came down to earth, if they believe that at all, forget that he needed to come down. He needed to become a human for more than just the sacrifice on the cross. When you broaden the lens by which you understand Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, you will see that it was all important. Every single aspect of it, it was all important to fulfill all that was foretold in the Old Testament. 
The resurrection, while certainly important to our salvation, is not the only critical component to the necessity of Jesus' incarnation. We believe that Jesus Christ pre-existed in eternity past since he was with God and created with God. It was through him that all things are created and continue to have their being because he, as God, upholds them. And though he is fully God, he is also fully man, making him able to reconcile God and man. And in so doing, he is also able to keep all of God's promises to his people. And that leads us to our next critical aspect of Christ that the scriptures teach us, which is the work of Christ, the work of Christ. Now, we've already noted a few different ways that Jesus Christ works as we have examined his work in creation. How he sustained that creation, needed to become human, while at the same time being fully God, so that the forgiveness of sins could be made possible through his death and his resurrection. And since we've already examined that, I want to focus in on that last part of his work mentioned in verse 3, him sitting down at the right hand of the majesty on high, who is God. Now, some of you are probably wondering, how is Jesus sitting down at the right hand of God a work? It just seems like he's just sitting down. That's a great question. Hebrews 10, 11 to 14 tells us this. Every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But he, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time onward until his enemies be made a footstool for his feet. For by one offering, he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. As Jesus sat down, after he offered the sacrifice that is able to forever cleanse those who believe in him and repent of their sins, he also finished the work. And thus finishing the work, went up to heaven and he sent the Holy Spirit to help those who have been saved to become more like him until they're glorified in heaven. Jesus told his disciples in John 14, 16 to 26, that he had to leave them to go with the Father so that he could send them the Holy Spirit who would be with them forever, help them bear fruit, and remember all that Jesus had said. And though he sends the Holy Spirit to help all of his disciples, right, that's one of his works, Jesus does not stop working on our behalf. In his prayer for his disciples and the future generation of disciples who are to come, Jesus prays in John 17, 17 to 21, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. For their sakes, I sanctify myself that they themselves also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those also who believe in me, that's you and me, through their word, that they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. Because of Jesus' relentless love, for us, He continues to intercede for us before God the Father, praying that we would continue to grow 
in our love for God the Father and in Christ's likeness. And for this reason, Paul says in, in Romans 8, at the end of Romans 8, that we know that nothing will separate us from the love of God. Nothing at all. doesn't matter where it's from, what it is, nothing will separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And knowing that Jesus loves you, and continues to pray for you, for me, for the whole church, gives us so much confidence, knowing that he is not a passive observer who just hopes that things will work out. Right? He actively prays for you. And that doesn't mean that God will intervene to remove every single trial from our lives. And we know that. But as Jesus prays for us, we can know with great confidence that he has not forgotten you. He's not forgotten you, but is instead praying for you, asking for you to receive more grace so that you can grow in a way that you would never have grown if it were not for this trial. You see, your Savior has not, will not ever forget you. He loves you. He continues to work on your behalf. His work is not done just because he died and rose again. He continues to work on your behalf to, to assure you of his love for you. And so he prays for you. You might think, big whoop, Jesus. You're just praying for me. That doesn't help at all. Oh, no, 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 no. When he prays for you, when he cares for you in that way, he is showing you that he loves you so much that he presents you before God the Father and he says, Father, care for them. Grow them. Help them see what you want them to see. His love for you is relentless. He will not stop. He will not stop, which is why he prays. And you know that the prayer of a righteous man can do much, right? We've heard that in the scriptures. Well, Jesus is the most righteous man that has ever lived. He is ultimately righteous. And so if he is ultimately righteous, when he prays, you know it is answered. You know that it accomplishes much. So when, when he says that he prays for you, when we say that he prays for you, that he intercedes for you, that means everything. It means everything. Jesus loves you with a relentless love. Because of that, he continues to work on your behalf. And he gives you his spirit so that you'll be assured of that too. He gives you a church family, the body of Christ, so that when you enter trials, you are not alone, ever. Satan might make you think that. You might feel like you're alone, that you're isolated, that no one understands, but that is not true. He gives you the body for your good because he loves you. And that leads us to our final critical aspect of Christ that we will study tonight, which is the future glory of Christ. The future glory of Christ. Verse 4 says this, having become as much better than the angels as he has inherited a more excellent name than they. Jesus, sitting down at the right hand of the majesty on high, highlights how God the Father was pleased and satisfied with Christ's sacrifice. Right? If, 
if God was not pleased with Christ's sacrifice, then Jesus would not be able to sit down since that work is not done, that God's requirements have not been met. However, it is done. Therefore, he is able to sit down at the right hand of God, and thus he inherits a name more excellent than the angels. He's become much better than the angels. In his obedience to God, in becoming a man, dying on the cross, rising from the dead, Jesus becomes much better than the angels, and he inherits that name that is much, much more excellent than theirs. And Hebrews 2.9 tells us that in humbling himself, Jesus was made for a little while lower than the angels. His humanity made him temporarily lower than the angels. But as he obeys God's will to be a sacrifice for mankind, Jesus fulfills the law and is thus worthy of our worship. In Revelations 5, 9 to 10, the four living creatures and the 24 elders, they sing and they say, Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals, for you were slain and purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. Jesus' obedience... And his inheritance of his name does not mean that he was not always the glorious son of God. He always was the glorious son of God. He will continue to be the glorious son of God. Right? We, we've already seen that. He's already existed eternally as the son. But in his humility, when he became a man, he laid down any right to his titles, to his ability to exercise his power as God as freely as he would have if he was with God in heaven still. And yet, in submitting to God the Father, Jesus is once again elevated to his glorious state as a member of the Godhead, receiving even more glory because of how he restored God's relationship with all who will believe. Now, we know that Christ's future glory will also entail his second coming, in which he will establish his kingdom on earth, and make all things new, make all things right. And we'll cover that a little bit more on a future date. But what we want to recognize at this point is that as a result of his work, Jesus is worthy of all glory, honor, and worship. His future glory is to come. He gets more, and he will get some more. He would have been worthy of all glory, honor, and worship without his obedience because he's God. And he created all things in existence just by speaking in it speaking it for, right? But because of his obedience and the salvation that he provides, he proves even further how worthy he is of all glory. Though it may not be difficult for many of us who are here tonight to affirm what SF Bible believes regarding the person and work of Jesus Christ, it's vitally important for us to make sure that we have a proper view of who he is based on what the scriptures teach us because the certainty of our salvation and those whom we preach the gospel to depends on an accurate view of Christ. There are some who, with good intentions, have tried to explain away certain aspects of who Jesus is in order to make the gospel more tolerable to others. 
One well-known pastor recently denied that the virgin birth was necessary for people to believe. In an effort to make the gospel more palatable for those who are skeptical about the Bible, insisting that the resurrection of Christ was more important for people to believe than whether he was born of a virgin. He was trying to remove a stumbling block to make it easier for people to believe in Jesus. But in doing so, he throws out a good portion of the scriptures as well. And since the Bible comes with hermeneutics included, we must look to the scriptures for our understanding of who Christ is, embracing the fact that God uses the foolish things in the world, such as the virgin birth of Christ and his resurrection, to shame the wise. It is not, I repeat, it is not our job to make the Bible palatable to people so that they might believe. You do not have to be ashamed of the gospel. You do not have to be ashamed of the scriptures. You don't have to make excuses for it. Our job instead is to be faithful to what the scriptures teach so that God may receive the glory he richly deserves. And as such, the Jesus of the Bible is the Jesus that we hold out to the world. This evening, we were able to study five critical aspects of Jesus Christ that the scriptures teach us to inform our belief. We were reminded of his preexistence, his deity, his humanity, his work, and his future glory. The scriptures teach us all of these things regarding Jesus Christ. And because the scriptures are consistent within themselves on who Christ is, what he looks like, what he's supposed to do, what he will do. We believe in Jesus as he is revealed in the scriptures. And that's why we believe the things that we do about Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we're so grateful for Christ. Without him, none of us would be able to last before you for even a millisecond. Our sin before you would wipe us out because your righteousness, your purity, your perfection is too much for our sin. We rightly deserve your wrath. We rightly deserve an eternity in hell. Yet, you, because of your love for us, sent us your son. You spared us from your wrath with yourself. How can that be? It doesn't make any sense, and yet, because of your love for us, that's what you do. And Father, as we consider that, we cannot help but give you all the glory, give you all the honor, give you all the worship. For my brothers and sisters who are here this evening, who are suffering, 
as they are reminded of your relentless love for us, may they be reminded that you've not forgotten them. That in their trial, you continue to care for them. That your Son and that your Holy Spirit intercede for them. May they be comforted by the fact that you love them and you will not give up on them. And that you will, through the trial, give them the strength to endure. Even though it may not seem like they will have the strength, we pray that you would help them to be sustained through your word, through prayer, and through the body of Christ. Knowing that you've given us all these things to buoy us, to keep us afloat launch us forward. May we be reminded of the hope that awaits us in heaven. But the future glory of Christ also means the making right of everything. The removal of sin completely. And our everlasting joy and peace in you. If there are any here this evening who do not know you, who do not have an accurate view of Christ, may you help them see that the view of Christ that they have is not a view that will save. May you help them realize that it is through him and through him alone that salvation of sin is possible. May you help them see those truths and may you help them realize just how much you love them. May they repent of their sins and turn to you this evening. We're grateful to you so much for all that you've done, for all that you are. It's in your son's name we pray.